Hello there, welcome to episode 5 of the HSK Student Pod. This is Richard, your host from the HSK ATEC team. Thank you for joining us on episode 5 of the HSK Student Pod. It's a pleasure to have you as one of our listeners. I want to start off by thanking you all our listeners for the positive feedback and ideas you have been giving regarding the HSK Student Pod. We continue to encourage you to keep sending in any ideas you have got and to keep sharing the podcast with your friends and colleagues to help continue to build that HSK staff student community. As usual, I have a special guest lined up for you who are going to share wonderful and fantastic messages with us, and I hope you enjoy this episode. First, we have a message from Julie Vullo, our Associate Dean for Learning and Teaching and Student Experience. Julie is going to give us some general news and updates on what's going on in the school. I now hand over to Julie. Thank you, Richard, and a very warm welcome to the April podcast. I'm going to start this month's update with a shout out to Grace O'Hagan, one of our midwifery students, and Tunde Elugbaju from Adult Nursing. Both students were awarded Student Representative of the Month in February by the Students' Union. So well done to both of you, and thank you for playing your part in making sure the student voice is heard loud and clear across the school. I also wanted to say a big well done to Vicky Singleton. Vicky's one of our children's nursing students who's been shortlisted for Vice Chancellor's Award. The VCAs, as they're called, are held every year to reward staff and students who do outstanding work. Each school is allowed to nominate three students to go through to the next stage. So Vicky was shortlisted by the school selection panel before going through to the university round and then was shortlisted onto the final finalist list. Results are going to be announced at an awards dinner in June, so fingers crossed for you, Vicky, and well done again. Our own HSK Dean's Awards are also open now for nominations, with categories for academic, professional, technical staff and students, of course. We've got our own selection panel chaired by the Dean of School, Jackie Kelly, and our own awards event on June the 19th. We've had over 50 nominations so far, but there's plenty of room for more. So the uh, closing date is end of the month. And uh, if you are successful, the first prize is £100. And the highly commended prize is £50. Both winner and highly commended uh, nominees get a school gift and a professionally taken photograph. Uh, And there's cake and tea and you can bring your family. So what's not to like? Um, It's a really nice celebratory event. So if you can find a moment to do an online nomination and nominate somebody that you would like to see get the award, then please take time to do so and uh, make somebody's day. So that's probably enough for me. I'm going to sign off by saying have a really good vacation break. Keep up all the hard work for your exams and assignments, but make sure you find yourself some downtime too to be with your friends and family, have a hunt for Easter eggs, get sporty, chill out on your own, whatever takes your fancy. Um, Just make sure you have a little bit of time to yourselves. That's all for me, so I'm going to hand back now to our anchorman, Richard. Richard, over to you. Thanks, Julie, for sharing with us the important news and keeping us up to date on what's going on in the school. We really do appreciate all your efforts in improving student experience. Dear listeners, just a quick reminder. You can find the online nomination form on the HSK StudyNet news stream. You just need to go to the news section on the school site and look under the April 2019 news list. You then need to click on the news link with the following heading, which is located under April 2019 news. The link you are looking for is HSK Dean's Awards. Keep those nominations coming. And this was published on the 4th of April. When you're on that page, you need to then look on the third paragraph, which is made up of just one sentence. And this is the sentence you're looking for. How to nominate. Nominations can be made online here. So 
just click on that word here that word here is just a hyperlink that will take you to the form please please take a moment to do your nomination and make someone's day thank you for doing your nomination For this month's student success stories, we have our guest Rebecca Morris, a third-year adult nursing student. Rebecca is going to share a message related to her exciting elective experience in Spain. I now hand over to Julie, who had the opportunity of meeting and interviewing Rebecca. Right, thank you very much, Richard, and uh, welcome then to Rebecca. Uh, Rebecca Morris, who's one of our third-year students on the adult nursing programme, and Rebecca, you're here today to talk to us about your elective experience. I am, yes. We've just, before we started recording, we just had a quick chat about it and it, it sounds so exciting um, because you went to Spain. I did, yes. So could you tell us a bit about, you know, why did you go to Spain? How did that come about? Um, so basically, uh, my mum moved out there in about a year and a half ago and um, I sort of said to her, oh, you know, I'd love to be able to come and work out there in Spain, like it'd be an amazing experience. And um, my mum says to me, she says, oh, she says, do you know what, I'm going to go and speak to my health, you know, my healthcare insurance. And she says, let me see if I can just pop the question and see if anything happens. And anyway, she started speaking to the lady that was obviously sorting out her insurance. And um, she said, oh, she says, I've got a best friend who's got a company here. And she says, they've got a company called Angels. And she says, you know, maybe I could, you know, get her an email and see if she's interested in having a student over here for four weeks. So I was waiting for an email and then I got one back and basically she said she was more than happy to have me for the four weeks, um, which made it very, very easy for me because obviously I've got a full-time carer for my daughter, which was my mum. The only thing I had to pay for was my flight, so I, had to, I didn't have to pay for anything else. Um, and yeah, we got the ball rolling and we were all literally all organised by January in the beginning of the year. So I was really excited, couldn't wait to start. Um, and yeah, she just gave me a little bit of information on what they do. And uh, the information was that they were a bit like a community-based um, caring company. Um, they had, obviously, registered nurses of both Spanish and English. And they also had, like, healthcare assistants. So, again, it was a bit like a community-based care. Yeah. But because of the area itself, it was um, very sort of was a very traditionally Spanish area. So they were very culturally and very sort of religious and very set in their culture if that makes sense so you sort mm. of it was very hard for the company to bring in a new aspect of care if you want to say so that was why it was very interesting for me to go to um so yeah I started there in the September um no it wasn't sorry August we went mm. there in the August we went for four weeks and um yeah so basically we started there and she took me to the hospital so the most sort of interesting thing I saw was that when we went to the hospital um, the care was actually like the personal care or any feeding or any any drinks that were given was all done by the family. They weren't allowed at all to um, leave the person. So they had, they had so to have a So for 24 hours? Yes, so yes. day and night you had yes. family members as well? Yes, taking okay. care of them the whole time. Okay. Like So if the nurse wasn't, so if it is that the family member wasn't there, the patient either had to do it for themselves yeah. or... You know, there may have been an auxiliary staff, but it was very few and far between. Um, okay. the, yeah, the staff over there that were the nurses, they were very clinical based. So it was all to do with the drugs and literally just giving what the patient needed at the time. Okay. If they went in for like a hip replacement, the one thing that was very interesting was there was no such thing as bed hogging. So okay. they literally would go in on the Monday, have the operation, but they wouldn't really have physiotherapy. 
the physiotherapy would come round on the Friday, get yes. you up out of bed, and, and then literally it. you'd be going home that day. Wow, okay. So it was very... So, so length of stay for yes. a hip replacement was... Five days, but they'd be bedridden. Yeah. Until the final day. They'd get them and up. Then and one... then they go, yeah. So up on, on no the day after... that you're leaving, up and yeah. out. And no aftercare wow. was sorted. It was literally just your family sort you out now. Okay, there's, there's so much I want to ask you about that. Yes, and as an yeah. ex-tissue ex viability nurse, I've got to ask you, yeah. I've got to sidetrack for a moment and ask you what their skincare was like. You know, five days well, in bed on a major below-waist operation. Exactly, How's their skin? Exactly, but this is the thing. Um, because I wasn't based in the hospital, this is what I got, what I saw at the time and obviously yeah. what I asked questions of. And they said that, yeah, that was up to the family. They're the ones that did the rolling or they're the ones that did the the actual skincare and checked them out, etc. Um, but then this is why this company that I worked for were put in place because especially if it is that they were British, they obviously, like I say, they know what the healthcare like is here. Yes. So they expect the same from the Spanish and it's just not the case. So how on earth do they adjust to that? Because as you say, the expectation is so different, isn't it? Exactly. So... But this is, this is why, like I say, the company I worked for, um, the managers were both, both British. They did have, like I say, um, Spanish um, interpreters, if you want to say, and they did obviously have people that worked with the Spanish. Yeah. But for the English, the, the the people that were in charge of the company always explained to the British that you've got to understand that you're in another person's country, you're in mm. another country, mm. and this is the way that their healthcare works. So at the same time, they have brought in their, their company to basically build a bridge between the two, if that makes sense. So they've yeah. a, sort of brought that into sort of bring in what the British would be expecting of the Spanish, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. So they, they don't have anything to do with the care in hospital because at the end of the day, that's what, you know, they can't do. The only thing that they do do, if it is that, say, the British British family can't be there the whole time of the 24 mm. hours, the company would cover that for them. Right. So right. the person would go in, like the healthcare assistant would go in or, so, or another nurse would go in and do the care for the time yes. that the family yeah. can't be there, but they do have to pay, obviously. Um, but then when they come home, they would arrange a package of care for that person okay. to then obviously make sure that they get the, the care given to them when they've left for the hospital, if they're you know, at the end of life or if it is that they've got any kind of um, mobility issues, they would be the ones to get them back yeah. on track again. Yeah. But the Spanish didn't at the time have that. Okay. But my mum said now, she's updated me, supposedly there is different um, Spanish community healthcare, but they don't really work with the British. So it's very sort of... So it's, it's fascinating, isn't yeah. it? I mean, you you know, it's another European country. Yeah. It's not so very far away. We have such good connections with, exactly. with countries like Spain and so many British yeah. expats there. Yeah. And yet what you describe is a system that's so very different to what we have here. But it's funny because it, the way that we are here about sort of like the cultural dynamics here, mm. it's very the same over in Spain. They feel the same about us British. So it's very sort of in what way in the in fact that like they they feel we're cluster and that we we expect to be treated a certain way. They, they, you know they don't speak the language etc. Okay. So they get a bit upset so about, about integration, exactly. British integrating yeah. into a Spanish they community feel very, and culture. Very the same, okay. and it, it was so interesting to see that because obviously before I went over there, I tried to learn some Spanish. I had to took some Spanish classes. My mom, since she's been living there, she's been learning Spanish. She's mm -hmm. been even before she went, she took classes. So she wanted to make sure she integrated within the community because she lives in a very, very traditionally Spanish village and it's it's beautiful. It's a lovely place. The, the Spanish are absolutely lovely people. But again, it's about being accepted because of 
you know, you being a different yes. of a different yes. origin and they yeah. expect you to to be able to understand them as well. So it's yeah. kind of better give a take, give and take, and we expect the same here in England. So it was just yeah. so fascinating to see. It sounds it same. sounds like the learning for you was on, you know, there were different dimensions to it. There was yes. both the the kind of clinical aspects yes. and yeah. the structure of healthcare there. Yes. But also those that there were those sort of additional dimensions yeah. around the culture yeah. uh, and the reality of being in, you know, exactly. having healthcare in a different country and your yeah. expectations. Yeah, and exactly. It sounds like you have a lot to bring back into your practice here. Oh, hundred percent because it just it opened my eyes a lot to see actually the way that they do things over there, if anything, I mean from what I've I felt would would work while here in the UK yeah. would the way that they don't have bed hogging. They don't have, they, they have it very structured, very organised, they're very sort of, they know what they're doing. The, the, the nurses are there to do the job that they're allocated to do. So, However, yeah. So there's real clarity about what the nurse's role yes, is, is that very, what you mean? It's very specific, like okay. this is what you have to do. There's Whereas, you know, with ours, even though we've got that duty of care and that we have that, you know, we have to be holistic, etc. But it's, sometimes it can look a bit vague as to what you are expected to do on the ward, you know, because you end up, kind of doing extra jobs on top of the jobs okay. you already have whereas there it's very this is my job I don't do any more okay. um, and it doesn't waste time it doesn't the, the, the IVs are always done on time you know there's no such thing as them doing drug rounds at the wrong time there's okay. not there's very few and far between drug errors and I think it is because they're very specific. And, and staffing. Uh, yes. I think lots of people fully would be staffed. interested to hear about that. You know, it's obviously fully. one of our biggest issues, staffing. But they are fully staffed. Fully staffed. Because, but they are fully staffed to the point that where they have to be. Do you know what I mean? As in, like, they, they have their nurses that do the clinical part of things. Yeah. They have the auxiliary to maybe bring round the food, to bring round the drinks. But they have family 24-7 that are with that patient, so they don't need to do anything else. So it's just, it, it was, it yeah. was if you had the sort of, the balance between the two, we had the holistic care from here in the UK, mm. and then we had the clinical care from Spain, put them together and have that staff yes. in. The, yeah. the UK would be perfect for healthcare. <laughs> That's how I feel. <laughs> just seeing the two there you are. together. Sorted. Exactly. As simple as it's that. Just, that's it. I've, I've sorted it out. <laughs> I know. There's, there is so much more we could talk about for this. I'm, I'm mindful of the time, but there's so much more to talk about this. And it's. I, I know you said to me earlier that you'd also presented I think to the second years yes um you know your experience yes. and uh whenever I listen to people talk about their electives all the different kinds of electives um you know it's such a good opportunity isn't oh, it? it I is, mean you were lucky yeah. in what yes. you had but you it only happened because you made it happen yes um and you know I think we'd really encourage everybody to get out there if you have the opportunity to do an elective do it wherever you do it there's so much to be learned oh, whether yeah, it's in another country or not there's so much isn't there to get yes. out of it so I think we'll finish perhaps then just with your hot tips really around, you know, preparation for an elective. Yes. You know, what, what are the, what's the advice that you would give to other people now, whether they're nurses or in other professions, around arranging their electives? Um, the main thing is be organised. So as soon as you know about, oh, I can look for an elective, look for it there and then. Don't yeah. leave it to the last minute because the more that you leave it to the last minute, it's very few and far between as to whether you actually get a placement or not, which then yeah. means in third year you'll be working back those four weeks of hours which at the end of your management placement, you won't be very happy to do that. If you do get a management placement, you're not 100% about. Um, so please try and get it done. Even if it is, it's not, it's in the UK, it doesn't have to be abroad. If you can go abroad, go and do it. Like, Don't stop yourself from doing it. If you've got mm-hmm. the opportunity to do it, do it. Um, yes, you have to finance it yourself. So again, making sure you have the finances in place, making sure that you do have that sort of you know responsibility and taking advice of that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just make, I'd say the one thing is just be organized and get it done and don't worry about it because then you can just look forward to it by the end of the year. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you for sharing your experience with us. Um, and best of luck now. You're in the Thank final you. rundown. I know. Yes. Have you got a job yet? Is yes. To a, you have. I have. Do you want, can you tell us where it is? Yeah, I'll be working in theatres. Lovely. She's yes. got a huge smile on her face. So I take it that's exactly the job you want to <laughs> Yeah. Lovely. Thank you very thank much. You. That's a fantastic message from Rebecca and Julie. Rebecca. Thank you very much for coming to share with our listeners your exciting elective experience in Spain and for sharing your tips over preparing for an elective. We wish you good luck in your new job. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I have lined up special guests for you. So not to let you down, for this month's student success stories, I am glad to say we have another guest, Jorion Price, a first-year paramedic student. Jorion is going to share a message with us related to his experience in practice and also preparation for practice. Jorion shares his experience of working with real people and how he feels it's different to working in simulation environments. I now hand you over to our fantastic Julie, who had the opportunity of meeting and interviewing Jorion. Right, lovely. Thank you very much, Richard, and uh, welcome today to Jolion Price, who is one of our first-year paramedic students. Uh, and Jolion, you're here today to talk to us a little bit about your experience in practice and also about your preparation for practice and some of the things, um, some of the things that you've learned from that. And I think some of the things that be interested to students, both in paramedic but also in other professional areas around. Um, what you can reasonably prepare for before you go out there and actually the things that you can't possibly prepare for until you get out there and do it for life. So we're really interested to hear your experiences. Um, and I want to start, I want to start because before we started the recording, we were talking a little bit about background and what you wanted to talk about. And you mentioned to me this book that you're reading um, and the relevance of that to what we're talking about today. So that's where I'd like to start. Would you like to share with us something about this book? Of and course. what it means to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I'm starting reading a book at the moment. I'm only a few chapters in, and it's called Complications by Atul Gawande. Now, he's an American surgeon, and it talks about uh, when things essentially can go wrong during medical practice. And at the moment, I'm reading about his first experiences. And he discusses how, quite rightly, we are all entitled to this perfect medical care However, to get that perfect medical care, we need to train people. And of course, in any kind of training, we make mistakes. So that made me really interested in looking at my own practice and trying to tackle my fear of making mistakes. It's quite a surreal feeling, especially when you're working with patients and you're trying skills for the very first time. Um, In previous careers, We often make little mistakes and we move on from it and we get on and it doesn't really affect anybody particular. It might be of some kind of inconvenience, but when it comes to working in a medical area, of course, those mistakes can be quite significant. Uh, Going to one of my practices, I did my very first injection, which was very exciting, Um, but it, it was quite scary as well. Um, I had practiced before. I've done simulations working with a, a piece of sponge and a, and a, a needle and, and that all worked fine, but you're not prepared for the reaction of a patient. Uh, and I did feel a sense of perhaps a bit of guilt 
in feeling, why did this patient deserve me to be practicing for the very first time? So it's quite a strange, surreal experience. And that was something I wanted to talk about today um, and, and seeing how working in a simulation can be very different to actually working in the, in the real world, in the real scenarios. So let's go back then to that injection, because that's often, and I remember this even in my own training, that the injection held a certain amount of fear for me. As it did. I think because you're, you know, it's invasive and, mm. and, it, and it hurts. So it you know, you're going to do this to somebody else and legitimately in your job, which is really weird. Um, so you did it, simulation, bit of sponge. Um, <laughs> what did? What were the real differences? You said you felt a bit guilty going to your patient. Did your patient know it was your first time? Well, she didn't know. Yeah. Uh, and I thought maybe it was wise to not tell her it was my very first go, as she was already in a little bit of distress anyway. Um, I did have my mentor with me, and I did feel comfortable in doing it, and I felt safe, and he did watch me throughout the entire procedure. Actually, putting the needle in was fine. Uh, it felt just like the simulation. And to my relief, the patient didn't seem to flinch at all. Um, I was going intramuscular and it all seemed to be OK until I actually started to uh, release the drug in. Yeah. And suddenly that's when she started to react and get quite a bit of pain. Okay. I understood afterwards that that was perfectly normal and that was a perfect reaction. But for me, it felt terrible. I want to be helping this patient. The last thing I want to be doing is inflicting any more discomfort. So that was quite a surreal experience to have. And did you, did you expect that? So from the simulation, did you feel that you were prepared for the fact you can get that very human response? You don't know what that response is going to be. Um, did you sort of feel prepared for that? Or is that something you just couldn't have been prepared for during a, a simulation? I think it's something you just can't be prepared for. Um, and that's similar to what um, Atul Gawande talks about in his book, that when it comes to the, working with real people, it's something you can't ever prepare for until you really do it. And it just comes down to practice and experience um, and getting more and more confident as you progress. Yeah. So do you, in terms of simulation activity, do you think that there is a place for simulation in your learning definitely absolutely. and but clearly there's nothing would you say that could compare with the live experience of being out there with patients I think so uh, I found that some of the most rewarding areas of working and placement were in fact the, the, the skills which you can't learn from a textbook and you can't learn from simulation um, I had one very sweet old lady um, who we felt was not particularly well and we wanted to take her into hospital Um, but we wanted to make sure she was comfortable first and so my role in that job was finding the shredded wheat and feeding (laughs) and uh, making sure that she was all ready and feeding her very um, small corgi um, and and getting the place a little bit tidier before we left and that's something that you can't prepare for Um, but just as important skills and even though maybe not of much clinical relevance um, from a social point of view, I think it was definitely very beneficial to her as a patient. So do you think the, I mean, it's a really, you know, it's a very positive way of looking at it. She's only a very holistic way of mm. looking at it. You said it's not clinical, but in many respects it is, isn't it? Because the success of the clinical episode is almost certainly reliant in part on the things you did around it to ensure that she was reassured that... Um, she was prepared to come in. You said you gave her, was it shredded wheat? It was shredded wheat, <laughs> her favourite, apparently. <laughs> uh, in terms of her well-being, and, you know, uh, that seems to me to be a very important part of what you did. But I imagine I imagine a lot of the public wouldn't recognise that as, a, as part of the paramedic role. 
No, and I think that's a very interesting um, kind of area to look into, especially for paramedics, uh, because our role is changing. In fact, we were just discussing it earlier today in lectures that we aren't really seen as an emergency service anymore. Uh, and perhaps quite rightly, we are there now for a huge range of uh, reasons. Um, there are now paramedics who can prescribe that we can um, help with antibiotics. We're helping in GP practices. And so understandably, everyone's understanding and knowledge of a paramedic does, has changed. Um, and I do think that the, the cardiac arrests are um, something that paramedics are very good at. We're very strong at. Um, but we're also very good at helping with the holistic views, um, the holistic practices, which I think are becoming more and more important in our practice. And it strikes me listening to you that there's some parallels there with perhaps uh, services like police service, whose role have changed hugely and again encompasses now that the, the well-being, the social aspects of care and that integration between services like yours, police services and other support services out in the community is becoming more and more important, isn't it? Rather than those very separate ideas of this is what a paramedic does, this is what a policeman does, this is... And, and it seems that that sort of integration is starting to happen, albeit Absolutely. slowly. It really is. I also work as an on-call firefighter when I'm not here uh, and it's that's something I've already noticed in, in my fairly early career with them as well. Uh, it's not just simply about putting out fires and RTCs, it's about community uh, and being there as a support in any way we can. And uh, recently we've been working with paramedics on co-responding as well uh, and just trying to be more involved, not just as separate emergency services, but all together as a, as a united front. Yeah. That's fascinating. And then, I'm, and then I'm listening to you and thinking, I'm not quite sure how you fit the time in to be a, a part-time firefighter as well. And also you have to switch hats a bit there, don't you? So if you're a firefighter, you're not being a paramedic. And yeah, so there's a bit of a, a flexibility there. And I'm <laughs> impressed. But you also said to me when before we started recording that um, this, was, this is not your first career move or career choice is it because you're in a different very different career before this so tell us a bit about what you were doing before you decided to become a paramedic student I was well I uh, at the age of 18 I went to drama school and I trained as an actor for three years um, and then worked as an actor and also worked behind the scenes in film and tv um, so I've done a very quick change but quite a sudden change um, into a very different career now um, I've always joked to people that I couldn't get on casualty, so I thought I might as well just train to be a paramedic <laughs> instead. Um, but it's it's funny how there are quite a lot of parallels, actually, mm. between it. Um, though, of course, the pressure is different. There are still stressful parts to both jobs. Um, and one thing I've really learned that I've taken from my acting and trying to transfer onto my paramedic is um, the idea of being able to stay present in a scenario. Mm. Um, especially with being working as a paramedic or a nurse or a midwife or any other medical profession, we get put into very highly stressful jobs and scenarios. And for me, one thing I've learned from my acting career um, and being on stage is to breathe. Okay. It seems like a perfectly simple mm -hmm. idea, but it's actually very difficult. And I think if we really focus, there are a lot of the times when we get stressed, we hold our breath, uh, and it's quite hard to then be able to think straight. Yeah. Um, so what I, something I, I do, a little technique, is just taking a moment just to breathe. And it just helps me to settle and try and to uh, 
take in my surroundings and being able to manage whatever situation or problem that is presented in front of me. Okay, I think that's a great tip to share. And I'm, I'm trying to imagine which is more terrifying, standing on a stage in front of an audience of, I don't know, several hundred or thousand, or being at a, a, a multiple incident scene where you've first arriving and you've got to work out what to do next and, and there's lots of different things going on and uh, and, and lots of uh, demands on your attention and, and, and I can't actually uh, think actually which is more terrifying at the moment. <laughs> um, but I get the point that you say you know breathing and centering yourself and taking a nanosecond even just to relax and try and focus and get that oxygen back into your brain so you can start thinking and doing what you need to do in a very timely and efficient manner um, is a great tip I think for everybody and one we could probably all learn from. Um, that's great thank you so much I mean, it's really interesting and thinking about simulation what you actually do in practice the reality of the two simulation clearly very important but nothing replaces the live event and you said about the support you get in your case from your practice educators um, and whether it's your mentor or whoever else it is in practice supporting but leaning on them when you need to absolutely get support that expertise is there for you after all and and you clearly seem to have come out the other end absolutely fine <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so it can't all be bad um thank you so much thank you for sharing that any final points anything you particularly want to say uh no i think all i would say is um just go out there and don't be afraid to make mistakes be honest and um just take each job or scenario as it comes Brilliant. thank you so much Julian. good luck with your next assignment and your next period of practice thanks very thank much you. that's a fantastic message from Julian and julie Julian, thank you very much for coming to share with our listeners your experience of working with real people and how it's different to working in simulation environments your encouraging message of not being afraid to make mistakes is empowering to our listeners as i know all HSK students have got a big aspect of their course linked to practical placements that involve working with your people. I'm really sure our listeners have taken on your breathing tip that could be really useful when they are faced with difficult or challenging situations. We wish you good luck in your course. This is to all HSK student pod listeners. We are always keen to hear first-hand accounts from HSK students about your work your experiences, your challenges and successes. Please, do get in touch if you have got a message you would want to share with our listeners. For this month's Professional Spotlight, we have a unit circuit from the adult nursing team. As you are aware, internet usage has increased significantly in the last 10 years. Social media such as Facebook, WhatsApp, Twitter are used in so many different ways to share information and to communicate with friends, our colleagues, our family and all associates. Nowadays, digital information about individuals is widely and often easily available. For example, you can search for someone's name on Google and surprisingly, you are likely to get so much information about a person, which often includes photos. I know. When most people pass away, they have a will which takes care of their physical assets and the loved ones that are left behind. My question is, what happens to a person's digital data when they sadly pass away? That is, when me and you die, what will happen to our digital data and social network accounts? What will happen to our special and memorable photos or messages on social network accounts when we pass away? 
I also have another question for you. Have you heard of the term digital legacy? What does the term digital legacy mean? Now, we are lucky to have our special guest today, Eunice, who will be able to enlighten us on what the term digital legacy means and why it's important for us in today's generation to know about it. I now hand you over to Eunice. Richard, thank you very much for inviting me to contribute to this podcast. Um, as you've rightly said, the usage of um, internet has really increased in the past few years, um, and especially the use of social media has as well. So on average, there's about 300 million uh, photos uploaded onto Facebook nearly every day. And another example of increased u internet usage is Twitter, where uh, each person sends probably 456,000 tweets per minute. Now, this gives us an idea or some indication of how much our internet um, sites are being used. Now, I just want to ask a few questions just really for us to think about the, the extent to which we use um, internet services. So, how many web accounts do you think the average person has? And thinking about yourself, how many passwords does an average person have? And also, how many social media accounts does the average person have? Now, for some answers to this, um, from the global social media account ownership, in 2017, it was realized that the average person has about 26 web accounts with on average about five passwords and social media accounts about eight per person. So there is an increased use as we've established already. However, how many of us have a will or have even thought about what happens to all this information if we die? So what is a digital legacy? The question will be. Someone's digital legacy is the information about that person that remains after they die. During a person's life, they can help create, co-create, and develop their digital legacy through interactions they have both online and offline. So an example will be the photos we upload on Facebook, YouTube videos, Twitter accounts, film credits. These are all quite regarded as intellectual property. And sometimes they can be both sentimental and monetary implications. So the next question would be, and to ask ourselves, what are digital assets? So digital assets are possessions that are made from computer code and exist in different formats. This include purchased music or movie files, personal digital photos, documents, and videos. Digital assets can be stored on several places, and an example would be on iCloud, services, Facebook, Instagram, and Dropbox, or even the uh, books that you have stored on your Kindles. They can also be saved on digital devices like your mobile phones, computers, and laptop. The National Council for Palliative Care and the Dying Matters Coalition undertook a research study of the general public to find out what their opinion on death and dying in relation to digital legacy was um, in 2016. Now, over 2,000 British adults aged over 18 were interviewed, and some of the findings for this research was that um, people wanted to transfer their digital properties that they've paid for, example, music, films, and games online, 
to someone else when they died. About 51% out of over 2,000 people wanted to do this. And another question put to the sample was about um, the ability for someone to access their online accounts, including email and social media, when they died. And yet again, 47% of over 2,000 British adults wanted somebody to be able to do that. And the final uh, question which was asked was that if someone they knew on social media dies, would they want to unfriend that person's um, accounts, which means they wouldn't have access to um, that person's uh, information. But surprisingly, only 8% of people wanted to do this. Most people, over 40%, wanted to be able to contribute to that friend's um, WhatsApp page or Facebook page, for example. So this, in a sense, tells us that, yes, people want to be able to access or give out their digital information when they die. Um, A question I'll ask Richard then is that, does anyone other than yourself know the password for your mobile phone? Not really. I tend not to share my passwords with other people. Quite, Quite right. Most of us will be reluctant in sharing our passwords on our mobile phone with um, those close to us. However, it might be that in the event of our death, our loved ones may need to access our phones to be able to retrieve this information. So Eunice, what is the current legal situation if you die and your loved ones may want to access your digital assets? Uh, the, The question, Richard, is that who owns the digital assets if a person dies without a will? An example is signing up for a Facebook account. You enter a binding contract with Facebook when you click accept, um, when you're setting up an account with them. So when the user dies, the control of the Facebook account belongs to Facebook. In that sense, Facebook can decide to close your account, delete or most commonly memorialize their account without noticing anyone. Subsequently, they can decide to publish something of interest or social interest from their deceased account. There is a lack of consistency on the matter, and this needs to be clarified further. But any time you're signing on to any of a social media account, it's probably good practice to check if the contract you're agreeing to includes a section on transmission after death, which really relates to your digital assets that you would have on that social media account. Um, Furthermore, all legal systems have rules relating to transmission of property on death under the name of wills and testaments law, succession and probate, which is common in English law. However, this is not harmonized across countries and may not include digital assets. So heirs to your account may contest to have access to digital assets and legacy, and this will have to be pursued in court as service providers may contest or it might be against the deceased wishes. An example for um, this situation where a person's digital assets are required to be accessed after their death is the owner of the cryptocurrency Bitcoin who died without revealing the the password to this online account. Now, this Canadian entrepreneur had over $145 million worth of cryptocurrency Um, But unfortunately, he died without revealing the password, which means this amount of money cannot be accessed. So this is an example of um, a current issue that has happened. So what can we do to manage our digital assets and accounts? 
the Digital Legacy Association has e- um, issued really good guidelines to help us think about our digital assets. Um, an example is that if you have a security password on a mobile phone or any other electronic device, you may want to think about how best to manage your passwords. The second point, if you have a social media account like Facebook, you may want to download your photos and videos from the service and pass them on to your next of kin or a trusted person. You may also want to provide administrative access of your social media accounts to someone you trust. If you have online subscriptions or online bank accounts, you may want to make suitable plans for each. If you have photos or videos stored on electronic devices or in the cloud, you may want to make a folder of your favorite photos and share them with a friend or family member. Sharing can occur through various internet services or by using an external memory stick or a hard drive. The Digital Legacy Association supports the general public, healthcare and social care professionals with areas relating to digital estate planning, digital legacy and bereavement. Their website is easily accessible and the address is www.digitallegacyassociation.org. You can access um, their site to get more information on this subject. So I would really encourage that you access this website to find out a little bit more about your own digital assets and how you would like that to be managed. Eunice, any final message you can give to HSK students? in terms of their expectations and their responsibilities? So I'm not expecting that HSK staff and students start sharing their passwords with other people, nothing like that. But the main key point is that we have the awareness that we need to be addressing these issues. And just accessing websites such as the digitallegacyassociation.org website will help us to be familiar with what we need to do and proceed to having relevant conversations to improve our decision-making around our digital assets, because this will help and improve our outcomes for this. Eunice, what a beautiful and enlightening message you have left with our listeners. I'm sure our listeners, especially HSK students and staff that are increasingly using digital data in so many different ways, are going to take on your key message and act on the issues you have raised today. Indeed, you have left us thinking in terms of uh, the importance of our digital legacy and how we can preserve it. I have personally benefited from your message and I'm going to share it with uh, friends and family. For example, you have uh, made me think of the importance of uh, setting up a digital legacy contact person. Dear listeners, our special guest Eunice has left us a challenging question. How are you going to preserve your digital legacy? That is... How are you going to preserve your digital legacy? Eunice, thank you so much for the wonderful and useful information you have shared with us today. It's always a pleasure to have our special guests on the HSK Student Pod. Richard, thank you very much for inviting me to contribute to the HSK Student Podcast. Thank you. I wish to thank our guests, Julie, Eunice, Rebecca, and Julian, for their wonderful and fantastic messages they have shared with us today. It's always a pleasure to have our guests on the HSK Student Pod. Now, before we come to the end of this podcast, let me remind you of the support there is for you here in the school and in the wider university. We know that HSK students are unique. You always study hard. 
work hard and are constant helping or supporting those around you. Our job is to help you make the most of the brilliant education, social and life experience that is available to you here in the university. I do encourage you to make the most of the resources and support you are being offered. On that note, I really encourage you to go and make use of the wonderful resource called the ASSI. This is really a brilliant site that will help you to develop academic study skills and it includes resources tailored specifically for health and social work professions. This is a site that will help you to make that positive step in getting good grades in your assignments. So, your module's website should really have a link to the SS site or perhaps you can go straight to this site by typing the following website address http uh, colon forward slash academic dash skills dot health dot hearts dot sc dot uk so if you think you the module site doesn't have the link to the ASS site you can go to that site by going to this website address http colon forward slash academic dash skills dot health dot hearts dot sc dot uk so please make use of this site don't forget to sign up to the HSK Student Podcast so that you can receive the new episodes automatically. This can be done by downloading and installing the SoundCloud app, which is really a free app that will give you easy access to the podcast episodes. Those who have the iPhones can also get access to the podcast through the iTunes website download list. Please, I just need to mention something. If you've got an iPhone, do not use the iTunes app store. You just need to go to the iTunes website download list and you can get it from there. As always, I encourage you to share this episode with your friends or colleagues. All you need to do is to just click on the share button. By reminding five friends or colleagues of yours to listen to this episode, you are doing your part to help to build the HSK staff student community. I know there are many of you going to placements or still on placements and many of you are working so hard on your assignments or even revising for your coming exams. I just wish you good luck on your placements, in your exams and in your current or future assignments. Lastly, I just need to say, look after yourselves. Find some relaxing time for yourself, doing things you really enjoy. I wish you a good Easter break and I hope you have a wonderful time with your family and friends. Thank you for joining us and for being part of this episode. Bye-bye from Richard, your host, and join us in our next HSK Student Pod, which will have something fresh and new to listen to.